You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are glad that you're here. So, uh, my son is 14, but when he was about five, he told me that he wanted uh, to become a pastor uh, when he grew up. And you can imagine my excitement. So I said, well, if that's the case, then we're going to start your training. And so pretty shortly after that, maybe within a week or so, I was officiating a wedding and I asked him if he wanted to come with me. And he said, sure. So I went, got my suit on, grabbed my Bible. And then he came out with his little four-year-old, five-year-old suit on and his kid's Bible. And uh, so I told him, I said, listen, as we're doing the wedding, just watch me. And, uh, you know, someday you'll be officiating somebody else's wedding. And he's like, uh, you know, so we drive down there and I'm talking to him about what happens in a wedding, the different parts of a wedding, what pastors say, where, and all this kind of stuff. And so we get there, it's at this country club. And we parked the car and we're walking over and he's like, dad, you're the senior pastor and I'm the junior pastor. And so we walk in and so the wedding starts and there's this other, co- uh, other pastor that's doing the beginning of the wedding that was, um, had some involvement with the, with the couple that were getting married. And so he was doing the first part and then I was coming up to do uh, this, the, major- the, the rest of the wedding. And uh, so, you know, there's this cue that I have. So Xander and I are sitting in the front row and then <clears throat> we, I get up when it's my when it's my turn, so I'm, I'm about ready to step. Um, I'm standing on the side of the stage, and the pastor's talking to the couple who are right there. I mean, it's probably this far away from where the podium is and where I'm standing. And then, I don't know if you have a, this, um, when you feel like someone is in your space, you ever have that moment? Like, what, what's going, you know, but you have like kind of like a spider sense, right? You're kind of like, what is going on? So I turn, I don't see anybody, and then I look down, and my son is standing right next to me, and I had told him to stay there while I went up. And, uh, and, and so we're on the stage, and I'm about to take over the wedding, and I'm like, what are you doing here? And he's like, you said to go with you. And I'm like, I didn't say come with me. I said, watch me while I'm, while I'm going while while to do this wedding, and then I'd be right back. And he's like, I thought I was doing this wedding too. And I'm like, you don't know how to do anything yet. Sit back down. So anyway, he sits back down and, uh, and <laughs> I finish the wedding and then we hang out for a little bit and then we're, we're driving home. And uh, that night, so then, you know, by this time it's late. So he gets home, changes, and we put him to bed. And I'm praying for him as he, as he goes to bed. And he's like, and I'm like, hey, you did great today, you know, and uh, I appreciate you coming with me and all that. And, and he's like, you know, dad, I, Really thought I was going to marry somebody today, and uh, and I'm like, well, yeah, you're you're, the, I don't know how, what you're going to do with that comic book Bible. You're going to like share, but anyway, anyway, but it's just a funny, it's such a funny thing because all of us, whether you're five or whatever age you are, all of us are looking for models. All of us are looking for people who have gone before us, uh, who have done what we are hoping to do, or have become the thing that we're hoping to become. And once again, it doesn't, it, it's not just professionally, although it certainly is true, but it's in every area of life. We're looking for models on how to be a better parent. We're looking for models on how to be a better employee or employer. We're ta- looking at a model on how to be a better son or a daughter, how to be a better uh, husband or, or wife. And, and the deal is this, finding a good model isn't the easiest thing to do. 
And this is why as parents, we are so concerned and rightly so about the friends that our kids make because we know the power and influence of the people who are closest to us. You see, this is why when Jesus called his disciples, it always began with two words. It always began with follow me. And the call to follow Jesus is the call to become, to become everything that they had the potential to be, and the call to walk with someone who could take them from where they are to ultimately where God wanted them to be. When a rabbi in that culture called a disciple, in Hebrew, it was called a Talmud, that's what you would call a disciple, but the Talmud or the student, it was his job to learn everything about the rabbi. It was his job to do everything just like the rabbi. His goal was to become as, as much, as close to the rabbi as he could become. In Christian circles, we call this term discipleship, the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus, the process of becoming more like Jesus, because at its core, following Jesus is becoming more like him. The problem is, is that in the culture in which we live, and we talk about following um, we, talk, we think like social media, oh, that person is following me. Oh, I'm following them. I'm friends with them on this particular platform. But listen, we follow lots of people and lots of people follow us, but it's not the same thing because you don't really follow anyone on Instagram. You just observe what they're doing. The problem is you can't call yourself an observer of someone who's like, hey, I'm one of your observers. I observe everything that you do. That is the creepiest language that you could possibly imagine. So that's why you don't call it that, even though it's probably a little more accurate than saying, I'm your friend on this, I'm your follower on this. But following Jesus is, is not about liking pictures or comments or commenting on his deeds. It's about giving your life to him completely. It's about modeling your life after his. And this is a perfect time for us to talk about this because we find ourselves in the book of Acts and we're gonna see four people today. Four people who are doing just that. They are modeling Jesus. They are taking whatever gifts and talents and abilities they've been given and using it for the glory of God. We find ourselves, if you can believe this, this is message number 16 in our study in the book of Acts. And if you aren't aware, maybe you're newer, uh, the book of Acts is the record of the growth, development, and expansion of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you were with us last time, and I hope you were, we had just seen the dramatic conversion of Saul of Tarsus from a Pharisee who imprisoned Christians to a follower of Jesus who was preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And then we're going to look and we're going to see three other people following Jesus and rightly reflecting who he is because ultimately that's what we want for our lives. We want to be more like Jesus and we want people when they come into contact with us and interact with us to see more of Jesus in what we say and what we do and how we respond. And that's what we see here. So we're going to start in uh, verse 23 of uh, Acts chapter 9. This is after Saul's conversion. Saul has begun preaching in the synagogues of Damascus that Jesus is the Messiah. And then here's what took place in verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews <clears throat> plotted against him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to look at in our time together about becoming who God created us to be. The first is this, is that God wants me to grow in knowledge and humility. 
Both of those things working in tandem together, knowledge and humility. Now, this is such a simple phrase, and, and we need to really understand it. We can just overlook it and, and, and not realize just how you know, pregnant it is with meaning. But it says this, Saul is in Damascus. He's been preaching, but then he leaves Damascus. And then it says this, the first things we read, now after many days were passed. And we might think like, oh, it was like a long weekend. No, it's actually a period of three years that passed. And we know that because in Galatians chapter one, which was the first epistle that Paul wrote, Saul becomes Paul, by the way, and I know I've been saying this and I'm using this interchangeably. I can't wait until chapter 11 where they're like, Saul, who was also called Paul, I'm dying for that day because I'm really trying to go back and forth. Saul is Paul, Paul is Saul. We're moving on, okay? So, but what happens is, is that the Apostle Paul, when he writes Galatians, he talks about what happened in his, his life experience after the Damascus Road when he's converted to Christianity. I want you to see what happens. This is in Galatians 1. It says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. During the three years that Paul is gone, he goes to Arabia or literally what's called Nabataean Arabia. Now, uh, this is just east of Damascus. You'll see this. Now, just FYI, I created this star right here. And uh, so I, want, I don't want to tell you how long it took me to create this star right here. But anyway, if you need me, I can do all of your graphic needs. And so anyway, but this is where Damascus is. And, and this whole area really is considered uh, Nabataean Arabia. I mean, this is modern day Saudi Arabia. Down here is, uh, is Yemen and um, uh, Omar is over here. Anyway, so this is Egypt. This is the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which is also uh, part of uh, Egypt now. And so, but this whole area, more than likely Paul was in this area of the, Arabia, uh, the Nabataean uh, Arabia, as far down as Petra, maybe a little further, but this is all really connected through a, major, through a major road. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is Paul doing for these three years? Now, Paul was more than likely preaching, learning, growing, but communicating. If right after he became a Christian, he was preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Messiah, there's no reason to believe that he stopped when he went into the desert. Now, I know there's teaching out there that says, well, Paul went into the desert to kind of contemplate his life. And um, people who say that, I think, have never studied Paul's life. Paul was this guy who could not sit still, and wherever he went, trouble was sure to follow close behind. And so, now, this is why, and we read this in, the, in our text in those first couple of verses, is that Paul goes into the desert. By the time he comes back to Damascus, there's a group of people that are waiting to kill him. This is not a guy who went from Pharisee to being a monk and just didn't talk to anybody for three years. This is a guy who was out there and was causing some trouble. And we know this because in the book of 2 Corinthians, he gives us a little more detail as to what happened. He says this, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Aretas was the king of the Nabataeans. If I can see that map again. 
He was the king of the Nabataeans and ruled from Petra. So this whole kingdom that they had, he ruled from the city of Petra. And there is a road that connects Petra, and you'll see it in our map here, this little dotted line that connects Petra with Damascus. And this actually, this road actually starts in Egypt, comes all the way up, and then would take you further up, and you could take this all the way to Asia um, or uh, this way and all the way to Rome and beyond. So, but this is a very important road that's called the King's Highway. And it's still there today. Um, it was, uh, I've ridden on the King's Highway and um, it's, it's, is as unpaved as it was 3,000 years ago. And I remember riding on it in this bus where I felt like I was inside of a blender. And I thought like, man, could we like raise some money to get some kind of road infrastructure here because I feel like I'm, I'm living in the Old Testament. And um, anyway, it's still not paved and they need to, but that's another conversation. So, but after the death of Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar uh, for the majority of Jesus's life growing up. Uh, not Herod the Great, uh, or Herod the Great, um, Augustus Caesar, this is Caesar Tiberius. Um, after the death of Tiberius in about 34 AD, there was a new emperor named Caligula. Uh, Caligula decided that he wanted to give gifts to the friends of Rome. And what it seems like historically is that he gave the city of Damascus to Aretas. Now, this is, uh, uh, Damascus was part of, and all of Syria was part of the Roman Empire, but it seems like he gave that city to Aretas because it kind of bordered the beginning of the Nabataean kingdom. And so that would have happened around 37 AD, about three years after Paul's conversion, which is why Aretas had a governor there and why he had a group waiting to kill Saul. It's interesting to me that Saul, when he approaches Damascus before his conversion, I mean, he's got a group of men with him. He's ready to arrest people. And now after his conversion, three years go by and he's got to be let out of a basket. In fact, let me show you this picture. Uh, this is a picture of Damascus and this is uh, historically where uh, Saul was let down um, in, in the basket. This Paul was the first basket case in the Bible. And so anyway, <laughs> but uh, truth be told, those baskets were actually used to transport fish up and down into the city of Damascus. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute, and I think this is really important. The moment that Saul became a Christian, he became the most brilliant mind in the church. And God takes all of these moments, letting down by a basket, he's not going out the front door, people trying to kill him, things not working out the way that he had hoped. God uses all of these moments to work humility into his life. Because you could be the most gifted person on earth, but if you lack humility, there is very little that God can do with you. However, if you will temper knowledge and gifting with humility, there is nothing that God cannot do with your life. But humility really is the key to being mightily used of God. When I was in college uh, getting my undergrad, which was somewhere around a thousand years ago, but I was, uh, I was a delivery guy and I was delivering chicken at night. So I'd go to school during the day and get my theology degree. And so there was this kid that would pack the orders, and he was so amazed by my sense of direction. And he was hoping that he could, 
be a delivery guy as well, but this kid could have gotten lost in his own living room. And so he's like, you know, Bob, I just need your help. And so uh, how do you know? And this is before Google Maps. This is before even Google existed. I don't even know if we were running on electricity, but it was a long time ago. And so I said, look, and I, you know, once again, I just, I've always had a pretty good sense of direction. And so I said, look, you want to know, here's your first lesson. So I grab him by the shoulders and I turn him and I said, look, this is north. Let's start here. And he's like, oh, I get it now. Everywhere I look is north. And I'm like, no, because you're not the center of the universe. That's, so you've missed the first, but this, you know, this is what pride does. Pride makes us think that we are the center of the universe and that everything is revolving around us. And you want to know how, a very easy way to know if someone is humble or not? Or here's how you can know if you are humble or not. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. Are you curious? Are you curious? Curious people want to learn. So here's what they do. They ask questions. Proud people do not ask questions. Proud people, oh yeah, I knew that already. Yeah, I already know that. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, let me tell you another little factoid that you didn't know. And they already know everything. The Apostle Paul never thought of himself as the smartest guy in the room, even though he probably was. In fact, you see this come out in his writings. This isn't in your notes, but I'll just have you write this down. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul says this, that he is the least of all the apostles. So out of all the apostles, out of all the top guys, he is the least of the apostles. But then later on in his ministry, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 8, he doesn't say that he's the least of the apostles. He says he is the least of all of God's people. So of everybody in the church, everybody following Jesus, he isn't just the least of the top guys. He is at the very bottom rung of all of God's people. But then later on in his ministry, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm not just the lowest guy of all the top guys, and I'm not just the lowest guy on all of God's people. I am at the top of the list of all the sinners. I am the worst sinner there is. You see, sometimes we talk about humility, and we think that it means that we think less of ourselves. And what a lot of times that is, really, is just false humility. Oh, man, I just, really, I stink at everything. You know, and we kind of, like, no, that's not, that's not the way that works. You have gifts, I have gifts, we all have gifts. There's things that we're good at. There's things that we're not good at. Humility is recognizing this is, this is my wheelhouse, this is what I'm good at, and this is outside of my wheelhouse. This is where I have no gifting. The Apostle Paul, in his wonderful book to the Romans, would say it this way. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. You see, humility, my definition, is knowing who I am in light of who God is. You know what pride is? Pride is making more of myself by making light of who God is. You see, an honest evaluation, what Paul says in Romans 12, 3, is I know who I am. I know how God has wired me. I know what my gifts are, and I know what my gifts are not. When we moved into our house uh, two years ago, I bought some ceiling fans, and I left them in the garage until my brother-in-law could come over and help me install them. And the reason is, is because the, when we had uh, bought some ceiling fans in our old house, I had thought to myself, I mean, how hard could it be to connect a couple of wires? 
And I, I just, I, I saw the instructions and I had the wire nuts. I'm like, I'm just going to pop that in. I don't even need to turn the power off to do this. So anyway, which is a true story. And um, anyway, I almost burned my house down. And, um, but I called my brother-in-law in the, in the middle of all of it. And I'm like, hey, I have a quick question for you. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it that sparks are coming out of my electrical panel? And he's like, out of one to 10, I'd say that's about a 20. And uh, anyway, and so he said, don't do anything, I'm on my way. And so now we have a deal. And he's like, we're gonna make a deal. If I have questions about the Bible, I'm gonna call you. And if you need to work with electricity, you're gonna call me because I want my family to live. And so I've been forbidden from working with electricity. And, uh, but you know what? It takes humility to, to acknowledge that you aren't good at something. Proud people think they can do anything and they're better than anybody else at doing everything. And you know, do you know why God doesn't create people who are gifted in everything? Because we are a body. And so what God does is that he gives me gifts that you don't have, and he gives you gifts that I don't have. And you know what we do? We serve one another. We help each other. We walk with each other. That's what you do when you're a body. We work together, and that's the thing that God is seeking to us. And you know what it does? It gives us gratitude for the people that have a gift that we don't have, and it gives us humility when we realize that there's gifts that we don't have that someone else possesses. So Paul comes back after three years. They let him down in the basket. Look what happens in verse 26. It says, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Damascus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Second thing to become who God created us to be. God wants us to grow in knowledge and humility. But the second thing is that God wants me to grow in encouragement and communication. Listen, Saul leaves Damascus and returns to Jerusalem. Remember, this is his first visit. Remember, he left Jerusalem with all the papers, with his group of guys, and he was gonna go and arrest believers. And now he has been gone for three years in the desert. So it's been a while, and maybe there's been some rumors about Saul, but hey, we heard that he became a Christian. That's impossible. This guy used to arrest Christians. Yeah, you're right. That's just crazy talk. And so, but now there, there, there's all these rumors, but no way that they could be true. But then Saul shows up in Jerusalem and tries to join the believers. But they won't let Saul join them because they believe that Saul is some kind of double agent. They're like, no, 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 we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to let us to try to get us to let you into where the church is so now you can arrest all the Christians. And let me tell you something, buddy. We've seen a lot of spy movies and we know how that works. This is exactly like that show Alias where the girl said she was working for the CIA, but she was a double agent. And that's how that is. We've seen that show somehow. And then, so that's that. And so they know kind of what's up with that. And then, so they're not going to let him in. And guess who shows up? Barnabas. 
And I told you this in chapter four, if you were with us, I said, you gotta remember this name. This guy is so important to the story of Acts. In chapter four, Barnabas is this guy who is a Levite who shows up, he sells a piece of land and he gives this generous gift to the church. Now, his given name was Joseph, but the disciples gave him a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's the guy who talks to the apostles on Saul's behalf and says, let me tell you something about Saul. Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul on the road. And he, when he got to Damascus, this guy Ananias came and prayed for him and received his sight. And immediately Paul went into the synagogues and started preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. He's been out for three years in the desert preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. So much so when he got back to Damascus, there was a group of people that were trying to kill him. And this is when they say, oh, okay, and then he stays. Remember we read this in, in Galatians, that he, he came to Jerusalem and then stayed with Peter for 15 days? Well, that's what happens here. And what I love is, is that he's in Jerusalem, staying at Peter's place, and he's disputing against the Hellenists. That is, and if you remember back in chapter 6, the Hellenists were Jews who had embraced Greek culture. Now, why is that so significant? Because when Stephen who we met in chapter 6, and we, heard his, we spent a couple of weeks looking at his fabulous sermon in chapter 7, that he was um, a believer and he was disputing with the Hellenists about Jesus. But then he was detained and later executed. He was martyred for his faith and Saul was there. That's how Saul first heard the gospel was through Stephen. And now he's standing. He approved of Stephen's death, but now he's standing in the spot that Stephen stood preaching the exact same things. And Saul thought, because of my background, these people are going to believe me. Why? Because Saul was a Hellenistic Jew. He was from an area called Cilicia, uh, uh, Tarsus, which is in a region called Cilicia, even though he then became a Pharisee and, and kind of left that behind. But his background was in Hellenism, although he became a Hebraic Jew. But here, you know what we find? Remember I told you that the story of Saul's conversion is in chapter 9, chapter 22, uh, and in chapter 26, that the story gets repeated? In chapter 22, we get a detail that we don't get anywhere else. In fact, let me show it to you. Um, it says this, and he says, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So here's the thing that I think is really important. It was the Lord Jesus who told Saul to leave Jerusalem and go and go back home. And when you read it at first glance, it's almost like uh, the apostles are thinking, hey, buddy, you're a little more trouble than you're worth. We're going to send you back home and figure out what we're going to do with you. But it wasn't. The Lord Jesus is the one that said, Saul, you need to go. And the believers were simply confirming that and helping that to take place. Now, I want, uh, something else I want you to know. Remember, Saul's converted outside of Damascus. He goes to Arabia for three years. He comes back, spends a little over two weeks with Peter. Then the Lord tells him to leave and go back to back home to Tarsus. So he does. He goes back home to Tarsus. And we will not see Saul again for another seven years. Now, this, so all the missionary journeys that we hear about, all this, like what most of the book of Acts covers are, is Paul and his missionary journeys. That doesn't happen 
until 10 years after his conversion. There is a season of preparation. And by the way, when we get to chapter 11, you know who's going to be the one who seeks him out? Barnabas. He's going to be the one that's looking for Saul. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute because I, I really think that a lot of times we don't know how to encourage in the biblical sense. When we talk about encouragement, we're not talking about uh, random motivational quotes. We're not talking about, you got this, you go, girl. You know, that's, that's not encouragement. I'm not even sure what that, I don't know what this is, but I don't, we don't know what that stuff is. But encouragement is something that's very specific. It's something that's very descriptive, and it's something that's very personal. Now, random motivational quotes may have their place, but it's certainly not biblical encouragement. And what I want to do is, instead of describing it to you, I thought I would give you a picture of what it looks like. In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul wants to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy, as he writes this final letter to him. And so I want to read to you how uh, Paul encourages Timothy. Look at what it says. He says, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. I want you to notice this specific thing that Paul wants to encourage Timothy about. He says, Timothy, you have a sincere faith. And I want you to know, I remember your tears the last time we saw each other. And that I look forward to seeing you so that I can be filled with joy and encouraged by you. But I want to tell you something, your faith is real. You know how I know that? Because your grandmother Lois she was a faithful person. Your mother Eunice was a faithful person. And I have observed your life and I'm watching that your life is one of faith as well. Here's the thing about encouragement is that encouragement costs nothing and yet it means everything. The right encouragement at the right time can change people. It can cause people to keep going. The right encouragement at the right time can cause people to refocus or remind them why they're doing what they're doing and why it matters. The problem is, is that we live in, a, in an encouragement-depleted world. This is why every time you turn on the TV or you go online, it's just like snark, you know, snarky comments and sarcasm and just outright rage. Um, and, and it's just stuff to discourage you. And by the way, you know all the studies that are done show that people who are not on social media are happier than those who are. In fact, the, the algorithm that social media is built on um, is built to make you angry. Because what they've found is, is that angry people stay on social media longer and interact more. And because social media isn't built for you, I don't know if you know, you know this, um, you are not the consumer, you are the product. And so they, all the, your interaction, they sell that to companies so that they can market to you and me. And that's how that works. So they want you to get mad so you'll stay on there longer and interact more and so they can sell more advertising. So it really begs the question, and if we know that, like nobody's shocked by this information. Like, yeah, no, I heard that. That's probably right. Right? So then if we knew that, here's the, like, why are we on? Like, wh why are we there? And, and I think I know why. Because we don't want to miss anything. And that's why we stay on. It's like, but what if something happens and I don't hear about it? 
But see, you were on there yesterday. And you know what happened? Nothing. And you were on there the day before. And you know what happened? Nothing. And, and, and listen, can I just give you social media in a nutshell? Parents post pictures of their kids. Couples with no kids post pictures of them going out and doing things. Single people post pictures of themselves incessantly because they don't want you to forget what they look like. Um, weird people post pictures of their pets. And, uh, and then the most unhinged among us in society post things to argue. And that's pretty much it. And don't email me about the pet thing. <laughs> I'm just reporting the news. I don't create the news. All right? So anyway. Now, but this is why people gravitate. Naturally, they just gravitate towards encouraging people. This is why if you want to be someone who has friends, just be an encourager. And it will be like a magnet. And you'll just draw people uh, to you. Because people, we all want to be encouraged by those that we love and respect. All of us. Uh, when my son was about four years old, we were at um, Epcot. And we went to the Nemo ride. I don't know if you remember, if you've been on the Nemo ride, you know that after they have this uh, aquarium. And then you can go through there and they have all these different fish and whatnot. And so um, my son has, he's always been, he started reading very early. In fact, my son was reading before he was talking, and uh, which is, that is a testament to my wife. And uh, so by the time he was four, he was reading at a second or third grade level. And so he, we walk, he and I are walking in this little aquarium, and my son is just reading everything on every sign. Uh, even like, you know, no chewing gum, or you know, it's everything. He's reading all the signs. And this lady is there, and she freaks out. And she's like, your son is such a good reader. How old is he? And I said, oh, he's four. And she's like, oh. and then she like grabs her daughter. She's like, I'm not even going to tell you my daughter's age because she doesn't read that well. Turns out she was 17. Weird. <laughs> and uh, no, I'm, just, I'm just messing around. So I have no idea. She was in her 20s. And uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> But anyway, so we talk a little bit, and then um, we, go back, we go back to the hotel that night, and, and Xander's laying down, and I'm like, buddy, I just want you to know something. I am so proud of you, and, I, and I'm so proud of the fact that you have worked so hard to become such a good reader, and, uh, and everybody, even people who don't know you, see it, that you have this incredible gifting because you're so smart. And I said, you know, I always dreamed of having a son, and having you has been even better than what I dreamed. And, uh, and he was like, thanks, Dad. I always dreamed of having a dad like you. <laughs> a dad with very little hair. And, uh, and I'll say what you want, at least it was specific. Uh, but this is why I believe that we really need, we need more people like Barnabas in the church. People who are going to go out of their way to encourage others. Because you never know who you're going to encourage and what those words will do in the lives of people. And I, can I just encourage you? Listen, th there's some of you are in here and there's somebody watching your kids in the children's ministry. Can I just tell you that it would go a long way if you just thank them? Like, hey, I know you have to get here early and I know you stay late because you're serving, but I just want you to know, I, I was taught God's word today because of your service today. I'm telling you, you share that, it's gonna go a long way with, with people. You know, help people in serving in the cafe. I want you to know, I was hungry when I got here and now I'm not, and that's because of you. 
And so maybe you do a little better than that, but this, I'm just coming up with this stuff on the fly. So anyway, so look what happens next. In uh, verse, verse 32, they send Saul away. It says, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there was a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydia and Sharon, or, or Lydda and Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. And I don't really know what to say about that. And uh, <laughs> I'm just delivering the news, okay? Okay, this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. Then, uh, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. And when they had come by, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so... It was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. If you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you about becoming who God created us to be is that God wants me to grow in faith and experience. Now, if you're following the, the larger story, the story of Acts is going to shift back to Peter. Uh, we, we, it was... Um, you know, following Peter, then we got a little bit of Stephen, a little bit of Philip, then we heard about Paul. Now it's going to shift back to Peter uh, up through chapter 12, and then it'll shift to the Apostle Paul. The first story of healing is Aeneas at Lydda. If you are one of the folks that are coming with us to Israel, the first place you will visit is Lydda. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's, the city is called Lod. Now, the reason is, is because Ben-Gurion International Airport is built on what was the town of Lydda. So you don't have a choice. We land there, you've been to Lydda. So, but I want you to see this map that I think is important. And that is, Peter is in Jerusalem. And he's traveling throughout, but the first thing he does is he goes to Lydda. So he takes what's called the Emmaus Road. And you might remember that from reading the Gospels that Jesus met two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is the road, it's still there. So he goes to Emmaus, then he goes to Lydda. This is where Aeneas is healed. And then where Tabitha is, where she dies, is in the city of Joppa. This is about 10 miles away. And so when they hear that Peter is in Lydda, they call for him and say, come with us to Joppa because uh, this, this woman has died whose name is Tabitha. Now, Tabitha was her Aramaic name. Um, the name Tabitha means gazelle. And so uh, the Greek name is translated to Dorcas, uh, which if it were me, I would have stuck with Tabitha, but you know, do what you will. But Tabitha dies and they do what's customary. They wash her body, they anoint her body with spices and oil, and then they put her in an upper room to await her being buried. But when they hear that Peter is close by, they call for him. Now, 
I want to tell you something. I love this story so much. And the reason I love it so much is you have to have an understanding of something that happens during Peter's training with Jesus that um, gives us a lot of color to this story. So um, in in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, there is a man whose name is Jairus. He is the ruler of the synagogue. And he comes to Jesus saying that his daughter is ill. And he says, but Jesus, if you will come to my house, you you can heal her. So he says, I will go. He's on his way there. And he finds out, uh, Jairus finds out that his daughter has died. And when they get to the house, Jesus kicks everybody out. He wants to see Jairus' daughter, but he kicks everybody out except Peter and the two brothers, James and John. So Peter, James, and John go in with Jesus. They're the only ones that are there. And I want you to see what happens in Mark chapter 5. Is that he took the child by the hand. You'll see it on the screen or in your notes. And he said to her, Talithakumi which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and that something should be given her to eat. Now, I want you to look at this story of our friend Dorcas and what Peter does. He does exactly what the master had done. It says, but Peter, in verse 40, put all of them out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. In fact, if we were to translate that in the original language, what would that say? You know what Peter said to her? He said to her, Tabitha kumi. He said exactly what Jesus said, but instead of saying little lamb arise, Talitha kumi, he said, Tabitha kumi, and and she stood up. His commitment to Jesus, him modeling himself after Jesus was reflected in his actions. He was modeling what he had seen, and this is what all of us are called to do. Following Jesus is about becoming like him. And it doesn't matter who you are. Listen, this should encourage us. This story of Peter encourages me. Peter was a fisherman when Jesus called him, and if we're being honest, he was kind of a mess. He was always saying the wrong thing, getting into arguments with the disciples, disagreeing with Jesus openly at times. And he was flawed, but being perfect is not a requirement of following Jesus. You start following Jesus and God starts working in your life. And let me start, let me tell you, you start being transformed. You aren't who you used to be. You're changed. And you know what I love is that we see Saul, he's preaching and using his gifts. Barnabas is encouraging and using his gifts. Tabitha is serving and using her gifts. And Peter is praying and healing and using his gifts. And my friends, I want to tell you something. If you want to see God do amazing things in your life, there's one thing that I know for sure that believers need to do is that we need to serve and use the gifts that we have been given. And if you don't know what those gifts are, that's okay. You start doing something for the kingdom and God's going to reveal it to you on the way as you're serving. You see, the culture would have us believe that greatness is found in people serving us. But grace is is not found in the serve us mentality. Jesus said the opposite, that greatness is found in service. The serve us mindset doesn't lead to joy or wholeness or purpose. It leads to frustration and emptiness and entitlement. And that's why Jesus gives gifts. And he calls us to something better. He calls us to serve others and partner with him as he transforms the world. And my friends, this is the beginning of how we become the person, the people that God created us to be. Let's pray together.
And Lord, we want to thank you for that, for that promise that you don't want to leave us the way we are, but instead you want to change us from the inside out. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that very work with each of us starting right now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 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 Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.